Okay, I am married to a man that loves to plan trips. In fact, he gets a lot more enjoyment from planning the trip than even going on the trip. And me, well, I am not a planner. I don't like that at all. And so the less I have to plan, the better. Well, this afternoon we're going to start a journey for our church. And the journey has been planned by the Heavenly Father. And we're starting this journey by reading together and studying together the series on the book of Philippians. And as I've shared with uh, many of you through email and personally, I'm very excited about uh, this journey that we're going to take through the book of Philippians and commencing our 40-day fast starting on January 1. Now, if you're new around here, um, we're not fasting from food. Uh, we're f- although I could stand to fast from food <laughs> for 40 days. We are fasting from negativity. And we are so, I am very confident that the Lord is going to do an amazing work in all of us through these 40 days. Now, I've been communicating to some of our missionaries about our prayer and fasting so they can, too, participate with us. And Cindy McBride, who's located in Iraq, was encouraged to hear that we were fasting from negativity. And she gave me permission to share her testimony. Some 20-plus years ago, I was a missionary in Swaziland, southern Africa. I had gone to park to the park to fast and pray, as I usually did. And I enjoyed the prayer, the meditation, and worship time, but I did not enjoy the fasting. As I spent some time with them, the Lord began to speak to me about my negative talking. Now, I don't hear sentences from the Lord. I simply get impressions. So I'll try to communicate with you the impressions I got. I worked with a team of Christians, both American and nationals. The director was a national Swazi Christian who loved the Lord and had weaknesses. We also had an American team leader who had weaknesses. There were other people on the team who also had weaknesses. And the Lord began to speak to me about my words about them. Your talk is negative. But Lord, I'm not saying anything that's not true. I'm not gossiping nor making things up. But your talk is negative. But Lord... I'm not out to get them. I just want them to do things right. There are better ways, you know. Look at Jesus. Are his words negative? No, Lord. But there are times he spoke out of righteous anger. Is that what you're doing? All those times? Well, isn't it? You have a negative spirit. I thought about it. Well, it seemed to me that my words were righteous anger. But it also seemed to be happening a lot. It didn't happen a lot with Jesus. I began to think, maybe, just maybe, I had no discernment when it was appropriate to be righteously indignant and when it was time to not. If that were true, then to give up inappropriate negative talk, I'd have to give up righteous indignation too. Is that what you want, Lord? For me to give up my negative talk whatsoever? Yes. That was going to be hard because there were so many things wrong with the team. After all, how were they ever going to change without me talking about it? All negative talk, Cindy. Okay, I sighed. For how long, Lord? As long as it takes. A week? I could give it up for a week. Silence. Well, a month then. Silence. Incredulously, I asked, six months? Still nothing. 
Okay, a year. I'll do it for a year. I wonder how in the world that was going to be possible. A negative thought. A year it is then, I suspect, with a twinkle in his eye. So I went back to the real world, the world full of imperfect people. They didn't know they were imperfect, and they didn't know they needed my help. It did not take long for the opportunities to arise. Yes, he is so... And then I had to stop, mid-sentence. Once I was asked, what were you going to say, Cindy? Nothing. I can't tell you how many sentences I had to abruptly stop midstream, but after a while I didn't even start those negative statements. I think I even became more pleasant to be around. This went on for week after week, month after month, eight months passed, with me refusing to speak out negatively about those imperfect, weak people. At the eight months, the Lord released me from that silence. And you know what happened? The spirit had been broken in me. Negative speaking was no longer a part of me. I do not speak negatively about my pastors, my bosses at work, or my colleagues. Oh, there are many times when I have slipped, but the Lord has been quick to bring conviction. I have never allowed that spirit to get a foothold in me again. Now, about my negative talk about my circumstances, mm, is that you, Lord, speaking to me again? Isn't that a great testimony? Now, Cindy gets to hear our sermons from Iraq, so let's give her a hand. Good job, Cindy. Okay, buckle your seats. We're about to start the journey. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much for this testimony that encourages us, Lord, that we're on the right track, that you're going to break a spirit of negativity over us, and you're going to change us, Lord, and we're grateful for that on the onset. And, Lord, we just pray that you would rest on all our missionaries um, as they pursue uh, freedom where they're at from any form of negativity that they're experiencing. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, to do a mighty work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, last promise. Let's turn to Paul, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with affection of Christ Jesus. Now the letter of Philippians was written to um, a church that was planted by Paul in the city of Philippi. In fact, it was Paul's first church plant in Europe. Philippi was named after Alexander the Great's father, Philip um, Macedon, who had done a battle there in 360 and conquered the, the city. Then Philippi was the site of another great battle. Perhaps you remember the Roman Empire, uh, Emperor Julius Caesar, who was um, betrayed by um, Brutus and Cassius and was killed. And those who were loyal to Julius Caesar, um, Mark Anthony and Octavia, fought a decisive battle against the, na- the traitors and defeated the city of Philippi. And from that point on, that city became a Roman colony and taking on Roman customs. 
Now, as you read Paul's letter to the Philippians, you realize that the letter is a little unique because you can see right off that he has a lot of affection for this church, in fact, more so than any other of the churches. And it was a letter where he wanted to thank the Philippians for uh, supporting him uh, with, for his mission endeavors and also while he was in jail. Another reason that the Apostle Paul was writing to the Philippians was to deal with an issue of division in the church. There was a problem of competitiveness and disunity among the people. Now we get a hint of this correction on the very first verse of Philippians. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus in Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Now I know that when you read Paul's letter, you might just gloss over and skim over the greeting, thinking, well, isn't that how they said hi? Dear John, how are you doing? I'm fine. But what I want you to know, even in your own personal studies, when you read the letters of Paul, is that often in the introduction or in the greeting is an indication of the purpose of the letter. Often it's tucked away or hidden, but there's a hint of the main purpose of the letter. And so it is with Philippians, when Paul says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Nowhere else does Paul start his greeting by linking himself with another person's name. Here Paul writes, Paul and Timothy, servants. This is important because in a church that was struggling with division and competition, Paul is putting an axe to that spirit. The Apostle Paul is saying, hey, I want you to check this out. I'm 25 years older. I led this kid to Christ. Go to him, Paul and Timothy. And look at the title he gives to them, to themselves. Servants. Because in order to deal with divisiveness or competition in a church, you have to start with ourselves as servants of each other. I see the Christian life as a journey, and we're on a road, and the destination is perfect relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, none of us are there. We start the journey when we turn to God in repentance and faith. But our life with God is really a journey, and a good deal of the relationship we have with God in life can be described as a journey of prayer. In verses 3 and 4, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers of all of you, and I always pray with joy. You know, many of us never get on the road or the journey of prayer. If you picture the journey kind of like a highway with on-ramps, most Christians regularly miss this on-ramp. Yeah, I see the highway stretched out in front of me, a highway that brings greater intimacy with God but I keep missing the on-ramp, and I don't even know where to start. Now, after a person has been explained the gospel, God loves you, and he decided that he wanted to have a relationship with you, and so he sent his son Jesus to die for your sins, and so that you may be reconciled with God and God with you. And all you need to do is believe that God wants to give you salvation as a free gift based solely on the work of Jesus on the cross. Then you will be saved eternally. After we get the gospel message and it's explained to an individual, often what we receive after that is, well, there is a job description. The job title is Good Christian. And the job description may sound something like this. There is a specific responsibility to share our faith. There's another specific responsibility to read the Bible. And there's a third specific responsibility, which is to pray. Now, maybe you even get the idea somehow that there are performance standards for the job description, you know, a fair performance for the specific responsibility of prayer might be 15 minutes a day. A good performance would be a half an hour, and an excellent performance would be an hour a day of prayer. 
We try to get on the on-ramp. With that job description, we find ourselves passing the on-ramp. We decide, I'm going to call in sick to work today. Gee, I'm not feeling good. I think I've got a cold. Oh, we take vacations on this job. Hey, weekends, I'm off duty, nights, holidays. At other times, we may hear this message, which is, since God has done so much for you in sending his son in the world to die for your sins, can't you do this little bit for God? Guilt is the big motivator here. What's the matter with you? How can you not do so little for God when he's done so much for you? Now, I don't believe that the spiritual job description or guilt will ever motivate us to prayer. It's inadequate. There is one fundamental reason why people get on the journey of prayer and keep going on, and it is because they understand what prayer is all about. Prayer is linking up our need with God's infinite resources. See, people who get on the journey of prayer because they get in touch right from the start that they have a profound need. When Paul says, in all my prayers for you, he is using a very interesting word in the Greek. It's not the typical word for prayer. The word that Paul is literally using means need. And what he's saying is this, in all my experience of need, I always pray for you. What I'm trying to say this is, in the journey of prayer begins when we experience that we have a sense of need. Why do you turn to God to begin with? Because you need him. And in, it is living in the place of need that we begin the journey of prayer. Now, what do I mean by living in the place of need? By need, I mean that experience of a distance between what we are and what we ought to be. I see there's a gap. I am not now what I ought to be, what I really want to be, what God wants to me, me to be, what the Bible says I should be, and what I really am. There is this gap. And I see this gap between where the church should be and what the church really should be. There's a distance between what God wants for the vineyard in the, power, in the area of power to heal and what we presently are doing and what we're presently able to do. There's a distance between what God wants in terms of the way we love each other and by the way we talk to one another. There's a distance between how God wants to express the heart of this church to the poor and what is presently happening. And as I look at my family, I see a gap in what I want for my kids and where they're at. I, what I want for my marriage and with Randy, there's a gap, this distance, and it's true in all of life. The school system is not what it ought to be. The economy is not what it ought to be. The way people relate in your college classroom, your finances, your work. Need is simply the experience of a distance between where I am currently and where I want to be and where I believe God wants me to be. When people experience this kind of gap, this is the kind of um, responses I've noted. First, they pretend there is no gap to deny that we have need. And we are talking about getting on the on-ramp of the journey of prayer. And you simply drive right by the on-ramp and say, if it begins with the experience of need, I just don't have any needs. We don't have any needs as a family. You know the old husband and wife dialogue. Problem? There's no problem. I'm affectionate. I'm affectionate as I need to be. And the kids, they're perfect. Distance between what the church is and what the church ought to be. There is no distance. 
Our church is perfect, and I'm the perfect pastor. You're supposed to laugh. Okay, thank you. Thank you, honey. Well, one of the responses regarding need is to live in denial. My kids are doing great. There's no problem with me sexually. I don't have a problem with my temper. Now, another response to the reality that there is in a distance between what I am and what I want to be is believe, and I try to meet those needs all by myself. So the second response is I'm going to take care of it all by myself without referring to God. And this is the secular response to the experience of need, self-reliance or self-sufficiency. We can take care of it ourselves. You know, churches could even do this. Adopt a fundamentally secular approach to strategies. Churches can search the scriptures and say, okay, God wants evangelism from the church. God wants world mission. God wants us to give to the poor. And so there's a distance between where we are and where we want to be. And so we sit down and strategize. Of course, there may be a perfunctory word of prayer at the beginning of the planning meeting and a in Jesus' name at the end. I have been praying for over a year about our church getting involved in missions. And it was one of those mornings where I I had been praying, and um, I got a flyer in the mail that day from Pura Vida in Costa Rica. And I knew when I got the flyer that this was answered to prayer. So last July, we sent 19 people to Costa Rica. That was amazing. For God to raise that much money for 19 folks to go to Costa Rica. I could have taken a self-reliant approach, a secular approach, and tried to figure it out by myself, but it would have left me anxious, burdened, and burned out because there is way too many needs for me to handle. Now, a third response is to agree that we have needs. But God won't meet them. And so we sink into despair. We have needs as a family. Our marriage is not good. I have needs in my business. Things are crumbling at work. I have my own personal issues, my own sins. I have problems with my parents. But God just won't help. And it is because of this that many people live in the sense of great need. And their fundamental view is God's not there. Now, a fourth response is to say, I have need, we have need, and God has the resources and the willingness to meet my need if I ask. And that is the place where prayer is born. This is the on-ramp of the journey of prayer. We see prayer as the link between our need and divine resource. What drives prayer? Now, the son in um, the lost son in Luke 15 left his dad, had a crazy life, was living in poverty, and was eating the leftovers after the pigs ate it. And he experienced need for the first time in his life. And he thought, you know, self, God, my dad, he's got a lot of bread, and he always has bread to spare even for the folks that work for him. Why don't I just go back to dad? Do you understand that discovering that we have need in our life is not all that bad? Being corrected, challenged, or confronted with the truth that your marriage needs help, get counseling. That your spirituality is dull, get involved in a growth group or a community group. Get involved in the fast. doesn't have to be devastating. That God is calling you or our church to change in the area of negativity 
doesn't have to be overwhelming. So we're now on the on-ramp and starting the journey. It's not a job description. I'm not presenting guilt trips. But we just recognize we have a need. The church has a need. Our family has a need. And that's where it starts. Yes, that's where it starts. You live in that place all the time, need. And you are confident that God has the resources. Now, as always, there are obstacles on this journey of prayer. Different detours or red cones that Satan will throw in your way that keep us from really moving forward in prayer. And one of those obstacles is a misconception about prayer. Folks say, well, I don't know. I hear what you're talking about, linking up with God's resources, with my need. But I want to tell you that my experience with prayer, it just doesn't work. I have tried what you're saying. My child's been sick for years, and we have prayed, and she hasn't gotten better. Prayer doesn't work. I have been having this problem in my business or getting a job. I prayed. My email is filled with rejection letters. It doesn't work, Clara. I am single. My spouse is still going ahead with a divorce. My dad still died. One of the great obstacles thrown in the way of a great journey of prayer is the view that it doesn't work. I've tried it. And this tumbling block springs from the misconception that prayer means getting what I want, linked up with God's divine resources. That is people's narrow definition of prayer. I want a husband. I want healing. I want $10,000 in the mail. I want an end to my loneliness. And because we operate in this narrow definition of prayer, we're frustrated and we say, why bother praying? A more realistic, honest view of prayer is that God does not always give us what we want. He often does. But prayer is getting what we need. And what we need more than anything is God. The divine resource that God always gives to deal with the experience of need is himself. You see, the goal in prayer is to gain more of Christ. Let me ask you a question. Is there any place of need that you have, that you can think of, that wouldn't be met by having more of Christ? That if you prayed for your marriage and you got more of God in your marriage, are you telling me that that wouldn't help? If I had more of God in this area of temptation, are you telling me that I wouldn't be assisted? If I had more of God in the church, if my kids' school had more of God, are you saying that wouldn't make any difference? The source is God himself. O'Hillsby, in his classic book on prayer, says, Prayer is simply opening the door and saying to God, Come into my situation, when we have been historically saying, Stay out. A lot of us have memorized a verse from the book of Revelation, which is, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him, and he with me. It's been told to us that this is a salvation verse, and it is. But what I want to tell you is that Revelation 3.20 is not just a salvation verse. It is a prayer verse. You've been keeping God's at arm's length from your sex life. Or you've prayed about it time to time, but have you really let him in? To gain him in, the, in that area, to gain Christ in your struggles at work, we need to gain the mind of God, the heart of God, the spirit 
of God in a variety of areas in this church. Prayer doesn't work. It absolutely does work. There is no situation that God won't enter if we ask him. Now, another detour from Satan that he throws at us is, well, I'm not a very good prayer. Maybe prayer works, but, you know, I'm not the praying kind of person. I'm not that mystical or intuitive. I'm not very poetic. I'm more of an activist. I'm more of an analytical person, you know. And most of the prayers that I know or love are those that I've read by somebody called Emily Dickinson, where you see little birds chipping, chirping around and twittering. I'm not like that. There is no one type of personality or person who can pray. It is a lie that you need to have a certain kind of personality to be a good prayer. You just need to be a person who's in touch with need. Anybody in the room there? Okay. Good. And it doesn't matter if you're an accountant, a doctor, a homemaker, an artist, a student, or a soldier. You get in touch with the distance between where you are and what you ought to be. Or what the situation is and what it needs to be. And you believe in the resource of God and out comes a prayer. It could be poetical, but it doesn't have to be. It can be flat out, God, I've examined my life and I'm bankrupt. And the debits completely outweighs the credits. I have no cash flow help. Well, if Satan doesn't convince us that we're not the right person, we pass that detour. And if he hasn't convinced us that prayer doesn't work, because we begin to see that prayer always works, for we can always gain more of God in our need, then he will throw this detour on your path. Well, you know, the circumstances are really against you for praying. You can't really get on that on-ramp because there are way too many demands on your schedule and your work life. You have to be work at 6 in the morning. You have two toddlers. You're nursing one of the babies. You just don't have time. You're never alone. Even when you go to the bathroom, there's somebody knocking on the door wanting to talk to you. You know, I am so glad that Paul's prayer is expressed here from a jail cell where he was chained to a Roman guard. It says, it is right for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart, whether I am in chains. This letter was written from jail with Paul constantly chained to a guard. It is not written from a place of great freedom or great amount of privacy. I don't know what you have in mind in terms to what you need in order to have great time alone with God or the particular place in which you feel you need to pray. I would encourage you to just begin to establish the discipline of starting with 10 minutes. In the first five minutes or the first two minutes, thank God. You tell God, thank you for whatever is good in your life. Get fixed in your mind and acknowledge to God that you are not the source of anything that is good in your life. Anything that's good in your life is good because of him. If you're healthy, say, thank you, God, that I'm healthy. If your kids are healthy, thank you, God, that my kids are healthy. If you're doing well in school, tell God that you know that sometimes you don't get what you deserve. Sometimes you do better and you're shocked by the good test score or grades. Say thank you, God, for the grades. And then spend the next six or eight minutes unpacking your needs to the Lord. God, I have this need. I sense the distance between what I am and what I could be. I want to unpack that before you and spread it out before you and gain more of you in this. 
I would like my wants, but I realize what I need. Please give me yourself. What you will discover is that those six minutes will stretch and won't be enough time to unpack your bags. But don't start with an hour. If I were going to start running at age 50, I wouldn't decide that I was just going to go out there and hit the pavement and hit an eight-mile mark. I would run a quarter mile and then take a breath and walk. It's the same thing with the journey of prayer. Start somewhere. Now, there are some things that could help us on the journey of prayer, and Paul mentions three things in this passage. First, the state, the sense of partnership that we have with other people. In verse 4, he says, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The word partnership is the word koinonia, and is one of Paul's favorite words, and is sometimes translated fellowship. It really means to be sharers together in something. One of the things that keeps prayer going is what some people call intercessory prayer, where we gather together to pray with others, for others. This produces a sense of partnership or commonness, and we really are together in this great adventure called Christianity. To kick off our 40 days of corporate prayer and fasting, we're offering gatherings for us to daily pray together, starting on January 1st and ending January the 7th. And we're going to be meeting at the church office and uh, for just an hour every day to pray. For the times and location, you can look on your um, program or you can look it up on the website. I am confident the Holy Spirit is going to show up. So do all you can to attend as many of those gatherings as you can. Now Paul says, what keeps my prayer going is that I realize I am not independent. I'm linked to you and you are linked to me. That what affects you affects me. You know the saying, if mama ain't happy, nobody going to be happy? So pray for mama. If my children aren't doing well, I pray for them. If I don't have a good spiritual life, I pray about it. If I want a good spiritual life, I pray that the Lord would bless the church that I attend because I'm connected. The first thing that keeps prayer going is that sense of partnership. And the second thing that keeps prayer going is that sense of confidence. Verse 6, Paul says, Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion to the day of Christ Jesus. Now in verse 6, it is in the context of prayer. And Paul is saying, My confidence is not just that God is at the beginning of the road, but that God is at the end. He's going to see it to completion. Whatever God starts, he finishes. He's not like those folks who start a project, lose interest, and start on another one. He's not a cosmic adolescent who really can't make up his mind what he wants to do in his life. He has eternal perspective, and what he starts, he finishes. The reason why you are going to get there is because God began a good work in you. In spite of your stumbling, bumbling, failing, indecision, unbelief, sin, hang in there. Because God is holding your hand and he won't let go. This is my faith. I have always believed that God is the leader of this road trip that we call the Christian life. That we respond, but he initiates. And that his will outweighs the will of man. And this is what drives prayer. I can keep going in prayer because I know it's not a tug of war. 
between my will and God's will. And that I'm trying to get something out of God that he, God doesn't want to give. Instead, prayer in prayer, my confidence is, God, you started this thing. Now I believe that you want to finish what you've started. You're the one who set it up so that I would marry Randy. You're the one who set it up so that I would have five kids and so forth. I am confident that you want us to really fulfill all the purposes in our marriage, in our family, and in our church. If you started it, you're going to help us finish it. Lord, you started this thing called the Christian life in me, and I am not what I ought to be. You want me to be holy. You want me to pray. You want me to do this and that. You're going to have to help me. You started this thing called the Vineyard Church of San Antonio. Make it what it should be. You know, that confidence of not feeling like I'm in a tug-of-war wrestling match with God and that he's unwilling to give me what I need is not there. And it really makes prayer a lot simpler and a lot more easier for me. It makes all the difference. Now, the final motivation to pray for others is simply love. Verse 7 and 8, it says, It is right for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart. Whether I'm in chains or defending the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. If you love people, you pray for them. The most loving thing that a husband can do for a wife is to pray for her. The most loving thing that a wife can do for a husband is to pray for him. The most loving thing, church, that you could do for Randy and I is to put us in your prayer. You love the church? Then pray for the church. Okay. So what we're going to do is I'm going to give you, we have a lot of space in here, so I want you to spread out all over the auditorium so that you are alone. Okay? So we have time. And we're going to do two minutes of thanking God for whatever is good in our life. And we're going to do it quietly alone. So everybody spread out. This is clinic. First we make you sit all close, and now we're telling you to spread out. And you can put uh, the lights a little bit softer after everybody gets somewhere. There's a lot more space there in the back there. Now, if, if order for you, I'm one of these people. Some people read with their lips. They tell you not to do that because that slows you down. But that's okay. So if you need to speak softly in order to focus and not get distracted with the fact that you're here or whatever, then I want you to do that. No one's going to be able to hear your mumblings. They may hear, oh, she's mumbling, but that's it. They're not going to hear what you're saying. The first two minutes, I want you to thank God for whatever is good in your life. Okay? And then I'll tell you when we're going to move.
Okay, for the um, next six to eight minutes, um, just identify what your need is, you know, where you are at or where your circumstance is at and where it ought to be, what God wants and where it should be. And just unpack that need to God. And, um, and then I'll, I'll close in prayer.
Lord Jesus, we thank you for being here with us and sitting next to each one of us tonight. And Lord, um, you really enjoyed that part where we thanked you for everything that's good. It felt good to you. You felt kissed in the face by it. And thank you that you enjoyed hearing us talk to you about our needs and where we're at and where we want to be. And that, Lord, it doesn't come to you as a surprise. You sure do like hearing our voice. And you sure love having this time with us. And, Father, we thank you that you promise to be in these needs that we have to make yourself known. And, Lord, we surrender our wants and we willingly take what we need, Lord, from you, which is your very presence in every situation that we encounter. And, Father, we thank you that you're not surprised um, by where we're at and you're excited about where we're going and you're excited about this journey, Lord Jesus, and where we're going to be 40 days from the first. And we praise you, Father, for the good work you're going to do. And we love you. Amen. Was that really super hard? Okay. Just imagine being chained to a, a guard and trying to figure out how to do that. I bet you that guard got saved. <laughs> I've got a feeling he had no hope. So if you need some prayer about some support and prayer about something and you would like some ministry, please come forward. We're here to, to minister to you and care for you. We love you very much. And tomorrow, uh, if you have no place to go, come to our house for New Year's Eve, okay? We're having a party. We'll be celebrating Murthy's uh, birthday. And you know me, I always have way too much food. So you've got a, got a place to go. Just come on over. And at 9.30, then we're going to drive to Atkins to uh, Mike McLean's home. And... Uh, buy fireworks and shoot fireworks and be crazy till midnight okay sound good love you okay need prayer come on up and do not forget to get your transformation jars and your devotional daniel is back there i think he is there there's a box back there and make sure get them for the kids too that can read and uh we'll start on we'll see you on january 1st uh for prayer at 7 o'clock.